What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Poor Things, the 2023 film written by Tony McNamara and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, based on the book Poor Things by Alastair Gray. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Don't do the Willem Dafoe burp. Don't do the Willem Dafoe burp. Hello, hello. <laughs> and Alex Calleros. <laughs> Hi. Okay, so we are in week two of our winter season, Best Picture Winter, where we're examining Oscar-worthy films, asking what does it mean to be Oscar-worthy, all the sort of Oscar-y questions we are examining. Next week, we're going to be examining Anatomy of a Fall. Last week, we talked about our favorite films of the 1970s, and that was preceded by sort of a soft launch of our winter season when we talked about Chinatown, which was awesome. That's a patron exclusive. If you want to check that out. Also over on Patreon, we are doing not Oscar-y things. We're talking about True Detective Night Country week by week, each episode that comes out. Uh, and that's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so a lot of things going on, but now... Poor things. So, Alex, I believe you said nominated for eleven Oscars, which is awesome. Uh, so I, so I was looking forward to this movie. I was anticipating it. I didn't watch any trailers uh, at all. I tried to avoid as much as possible. I saw a weird image of Emma Stone with sunglasses, and I knew that Mark Ruffalo was in it also. And that's basically all I knew, other than again directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who also directed The Favorite, which holds the unique spot, I think, of being the one movie we all super duper liked, like at an <laughs> equal level, like it's it's up there anyway. Um, and same screenwriter, Tony McMurrah. Right, and same screenwriter. So yeah, I was excited about it. And so I, I've talked about on the podcast, like it's hard for me to watch movies sometimes, like the analytical brain just doesn't shut off. I'll be watching an episode of Fargo and I'm annoying my wife because I'm like, that's the that's the boom pole in the corner there. And like, that's the shadow of that. Like, I'm always analyzing the filmmaking, except for really, really great movies that I get really, really into and I just disappear and I stop thinking. And Poor Things was one of those things for me. I absolutely yeah. loved this movie. Essentially start to finish. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Emma Stone is our generation's Meryl Streep. She's just so good. Like, I feel like every single frame of this movie, she's doing exactly what I feel like she should be doing. The 
the one little bump was toward the end. There's sort of a, a, a late turn that happens that we can talk about where it felt like everything was smooth sailing and then it was like, oh, oh wait, are we going to do more? And I kind of checked the time. That kind of threw me a little bit, but it was worth it and I support it. Uh, so everything about this sort of bizarre coming-of-age story that goes to all these weird places and takes place in this insane world like worked for me. I will say, I think, knowing that it was Yorgos Lanthimos helped put me in the right frame of mind. So when there were obscene, ab absurdly wide-angle shots of things, it didn't throw me out because I kind of knew, like, that's, okay, yeah, that's your fisheye thing that you're doing. And you said, how much fisheye can you do? All of it, apparently. You can do all the fisheye <laughs> is how much you did at this. <laughs> so, like, that's weird, but I was prepared for it. And otherwise, I just really, really loved it. Uh, start to finish. Um, Brian, what about you? Because I think you saw it first of all of us. I did see it first. Um, I also loved it. Uh, it's it's fitting that there's a character from 2023 called Weird Barbie. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> watching this movie, I was like, oh, this is just the plot of Barbie, but weird. Um, right. And, uh, and you know, I'll echo my thoughts from, from a year ago when we talked about everything everywhere all at once, which is... You know, around maybe 2017, I started to notice this kind of push for the weird art house kind of experimental movie. And I was like, I'm, I'm into this. This is my thing. I should be really excited about these. And then so many of the movies that came out were just like, ah, they didn't quite work for me. Or I was like, I liked what it was trying to do, but it didn't. Eh. And then everything everywhere at once felt like that perfect blend for me where it was just like, okay, this is like weird and out there, but it's also just like a really well-made movie. And then instead of just being one of those things that I personally was like, that worked for me, the entire world was like, that worked for all of us, right? Um, and I think last week, Trisha, you talked about Midnight Cowboy sort of ushering in the, the film style of the 70s. And I feel like everything, everywhere all at once, winning every Oscar basically is like, well, the butt plugs are out and it's time to, it's time to do weird, <laughs> weird movies that are also like big prestige, best picture nominee kind of movies. And, um, and I'm here for it. <laughs> like, I, I just, I love movies that, that take these kinds of chances. And I love when they're actually also well-made movies. And I feel like they have to be both. Um, I mean, a well-made movie that doesn't go crazy, I'm still okay with, but a movie that goes crazy that just doesn't feel like a good movie, it doesn't, I'm just gonna, like, unless it's like just perfectly tailored to my taste, I'm just not gonna be there for it. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I, so I had that thought all over again, watching Poor Things of just like, I feel like in, five to 10 years, I'm going to be looking back at this mini era going like, oh man, remember, remember we had it so good back then when all these like crazy movies were coming out and they were actually like big, big budget Oscar-y kind of movies. Uh, so yeah, I want to talk about more about the movie itself as we get into it, but all in all, I am, I'm happy with poor things, the movie, and I'm happy, happy with just where we are in filmmaking right now. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, and sort of swinging the other way, Trisha, you saw it the most recent, I believe, of all of us. Yes, I just watched this movie last night, um, and I also loved it. So, nice. Uh, skipping straight to the punchline, uh, this movie rules. Three for four. Okay, and doing good, doing good. Yeah, uh, no, what a blast. I mean, I had tried to avoid trailers, but I had seen one and was just super on board, and I can't, like, the 
the weirdness of it for its own sake doesn't do anything for me. But in the hands of a masterful storyteller where the weirdness is serving the story Mm -hmm. and doing like everything in tandem, the costume design, the production design, which are both nuts in this movie (laughs) and their scope and ambition and just richness of detail. They're amazing. But when all of that is also like, yeah, being directed by this uh, person with this, vision um and it's all about the story and the character journey and this deep deep allegory that's happening on screen it's just wonderful like we've talked so many times about movies that don't pretend to be anything other than movies and films like this that are like hi we're an allegory Mm -hmm. (laughs) right (laughs) right none of this is real Mm -hmm. uh this is not even like victorian anything it's just steampunk whatever the hell it is (laughs) like i love it i love that (laughs) um because that's what movies are for like that's what movies are for and they should do um and yeah, like I think it's easy to fall into a trap of thinking of movie characters, if you're a writer and, and filmmaker especially, of thinking of your movie characters like they're real people, um, which they're definitely not, right? Like you start to get into the like messiness or like the cerebral of like, Ooh, what did they eat for breakfast? And the answer is, if it's not a scene with breakfast, nothing. <laughs> like there is no <laughs> such thing as what is outside of the frame and the boundaries of the story. And the best filmmakers understand that everything that we are seeing is a representation of something else. That's what a story is. And so films that drive deep into that allegory to show us something about our world and still are incredibly entertaining are just Ah, what glorious, <laughs> glorious. And that's why I loved Barbie. That's part of the reason I really did love Barbie also. Um, yeah, and this also kind of weirdly reminded me of like Shape of Water. Like there's some of that stuff in here. Like, um, yeah, its own sort of reality in here um, that I just is so amazing. Emma Stone, we got to talk about her at length. I, like this yes. performance is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes. Truly, I don't understand. I don't understand how she moved her body like that. <laughs> like, I don't, she literally looks like a puppet. Anyway, amazing. One of my notes is Emma Stone and then just a period after it. Right. That was my first <laughs> yeah. and only note for a long time. I had to think about it for more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I can't wait to break it down more. I definitely want to get to the fourth act with you, Michael. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the major thing where I was like, huh, mm-hmm. about the movie. Um, and I have a lot of theories about why it's there and what it's doing and um but yeah yeah let's go same yeah excellent okay all right alex thoughts right. <laughs> i thought you were gonna say something after that suspense no <laughs> tell us tell us did you also love it? i also loved it so Yay! four for four Yay, we did it what a bit surprised if alex was the one of the four of us who was like nah. <laughs> alex is like nah <laughs> one never knows there's a version of this movie that maybe i wouldn't like because when it started before I sink into it before the allegorical nature of it became clear and I I got its thing. Um, There was a moment where it was threatening to be like what you were saying, Brian, one of those weird for weird sake movies and not much more where it was, you know, yeah, Willem Dafoe is burping a large uh, bubble as part of something. (laughs) And he has a gurgling thing behind him, like going into his side, I guess. Uh, And the the world itself was cool and weird and interesting. But uh, the movie takes a bit to, to get going and to really for me to really 
click into like, oh, this is all allegory. This is all she's kind of engaging in philosophy and ways of living and what is a good life. You know, that's when I was like, ah, yes, I love this. And because it is like you were saying, Trisha, a movie not pretending to be anything but a movie doing metaphor, doing allegory, doing this really human uh, spiritual story in a way through this totally wacky world. And and by the end of the movie, I thought it was perfect how that world was constructed because it, it's, it's the kind of thing where it, it gave me feelings and emotions, like the weirdness and the specificity of this world gave me complex, mixed, strange emotions, which were exactly the right emotions that feel like life emotions, you know, not movie emotions, which are sometimes very powerful, but kind of one note. And I feel like in this movie, I was constantly feeling it's almost like in a inside out when when the emotions get the like extra shades because they get mm. more complicated. Mm -hmm. They're both happy and sad. They're both like weird and safe, whatever. Every moment of this movie, I was having those complicated emotions. And I think it's it. And it was it's that thing where I don't understand how you do this. Like, how do you make choices that almost seem like random? and yet are also exactly right to perfectly make this concoction that gave me exactly the right experience for the story and the emotion and the themes and yada yada. That's where, yeah, by the end of it, I was like, that was a masterpiece. I don't understand how you make this movie because it accomplished all these things by being so weirdly specific. And how do you make all those weird choices so perfectly weirdly right <laughs> is impressive. <laughs> I have the answer and it's theme. Well, <laughs> it's having a crystal clear understanding of exactly what your movie is about. Right. And then when all of your team brings you things like costumes and production design and your actors ask you a question, you know where to look for the answer because you understand the exact thing that your movie is about. You understand it deeply in every single, you know, tiny piece of your film and so there's a there is a north star for you to follow as a filmmaker and that's how all you get something this rich because you have a filmmaker who knows exactly what the hell his movie is yeah yeah, yeah. I, you know i i think there's an interesting thing that happens where a lot of times people get bucked off the bucking bronco because they don't get it Right. And, and, you know, and, and we've all watched movies for the first time we didn't get it and we just sort of didn't enjoy it. And then maybe later we did or maybe we were like, no, I did get it, but it just didn't like the way it was done. Um, but yeah, I was like Alex and I, after we saw Bo is Afraid, we were just like, I was with you and I was with you. And then it just right. but then you did this and I didn't understand. And then you did this, And it was just sort of like the, the theme felt like it was there. And then you kind of take a you know, and for other people, maybe that's not the case. The Last of Us Part Two, I was so there with it. I was like, oh, that's a crazy choice you just made. But like. I got it. I understand exactly why you made that choice. Like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And and yeah, this act, this movie is absolutely the latter, as you were just talking about, Tricia, where it's like everything there. There was such a taut concentration on the plot and the theme and the characters that it was like no matter where it went, I felt like, yeah, but I know where I am. I feel really settled in this crazy world right now. Yeah. Yeah. Who better to sponsor our season all about elevated cinema than movie. 
Mubi is a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from all around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. And with Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere. A recent movie release is the film How to Have Sex by Molly Manning Walker. This film is led by a breakout, award-winning performance from Mia McKenna-Bruce. It's about three British teenage girls who go on a rites of passage holiday, drinking, clubbing, and hooking up in what should be the best summer of their lives. As they dance their way across the sun-drenched streets of Malia, they find themselves navigating the complexities of sex, consent, and self-discovery. It's a vibrant and authentic depiction of the agonies, ecstasies, and ride-or-die glory of young female friendship. Winner of the En Sauton Regard Prize at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival, apologies for my French, French speakers, and a Sundance Film Festival selection in 2024. How to Have Sex is coming to select theaters across the U.S. this February right now. To find a screening near you and get tickets, just visit movie.com slash howtohavesex. And for a limited time, you can try Mubi for free for 30 days at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay for a month of great cinema for free. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Okay, well, yeah, so, I mean, so many things to talk about. The weirdness, how how you do weird well, we've started to touch on, but, like, why it works, like, psychologically, I kind of want to talk about, too. Um, and, yeah, how it can be used for allegory story as a representation of meaning I want to talk about and underline a whole lot. Emma Stone, we're going to talk about it and also maybe in doing so set up our upcoming uh, episode on like what is acting, a conversation about acting that we're going to be having in a couple weeks on Patreon. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially in the context of Oscars. This is a, a great in for that, I think. Uh, what kind of an Oscar movie this is. And then also, yeah, this fourth act at the end. I want to pull that apart. Um, so... I want to begin with continuing this this the weirdness of it and why I think weirdness works for me like why like there's something in this movie in which the world is completely made up and a super not real that nonetheless gets at some deep truth in a way that movies that pretend to be real like never even get close to and for me, I think it's the this psychology of like sidestepping all of the defense mechanisms or preconceived notions that we bring to depictions of reality. And so I think, you know, there's some uh, challenging content in this movie. And I think were it set in our world uh, in a very literal way and there wasn't all this sort of magic behind it, I think it would be much harder to get people to look past, you know, what they're seeing in a in a literal way, and you know, not come with these prejudgments of like, no, you can't show that, or you can't talk about this, you can't do this or that. But by doing it in this other world, it kind of sidesteps that, makes those defense mechanisms shoot themselves. I don't know. They know they get confused and they don't know how to protect you. Uh, and then all that's left. Sorry, you, is, you're picturing defense mechanisms as, as turrets that you have run right. past and then they yes. point at each other. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And or like white blood out. cells that are like attacking. Yourself. Anyway, something in there. 
Uh, but all that's left is then just like the raw emotion that can like be accessed more directly. That's how it affects me anyway, especially in this movie. Yeah, I, I made a very similar note. So yeah, totally with you there. Well, and I think it also helps for the world to feel completely alien and new for us because it, let's just go with Bella on her journey. You know, she yeah. she is experiencing the world completely fresh. I don't know what to expect from this world. I don't know what it means to go like on a trip on a boat in this world. It could be anything, you know, yeah. um, we've seen that lots of crazy things are going on in this world that don't make any sense, you know, as far as, you know, pigs heads on chicken bodies and whatever. Um, and, and so I, I really, I, it helped me always be with Bella in a way. Cause it wasn't me just watching her in our universe bumble around and like, ah, ha, ha, you don't know what's going on. I was also on kind of my tippy toes like what the hell is going to happen next i don't know this is a really interesting universe that seems in a lot of ways actually kind of consistent in its own uh unknowable reality but i can't know it and things will happen that i won't expect and i really appreciated that that was also just really nice it i could never predict what kind of a situation bella was going to get into next because i don't know what kind of situations exist in this world uh but when but when they do happen they don't feel wrong either that's once again that's why it feels so magical and and impossible how do you create a world this random in some ways and yet so kind of coherent in other ways yeah the construction of the first you know five ten pages um ten minutes of this movie are crucial right because right. we have to be taught how to watch this movie we have to be taught what the world is like it's so foreign to us but we have to click into it like as quickly as possible and at the same time it can't feel like heavy expository work of like here's how everything works in our fantasy land um so the you know first couple of scenes we have that first 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 scene in color where we see her jump off the bridge and then so we have some understanding of like Okay, buckle up, everybody. Um, this is going to be very unexpected. Like you've got the contrast of the color, the black and white. Um, we already we dive in. We've got fisheye lenses. We've got like you know Emma Stone eating at that table, and she can't eat anything, and she can't talk, and she claps like a robot. And then Willem Dafoe does the bubble, right? Like all of that is in the first couple of minutes before we know anything about who they are. And there, and no one bothers to say or explain anything in that scene about who anybody is. We see the housekeeper looking weird at Emma Stone, like, ugh, um, Bella, I'm sorry. And then you have the construction. Shortly thereafter, we get a little bit more in the house with them um, as he's leaving to go to work. And she's trying to, you know, communicate with him. And then... We have the introduction of Max McCandles into the house almost immediately. It is the inciting incident. It's bringing a new person into the world who needs to have something explained to him. But even then, it's done so cleverly because he is given incomplete information and his role there is as an observer, right? And so like, as he's observing, we're tasked with observing also. Um, and it just, it all feels like of a piece and believable. Like I understand that what I'm being shown is like, this is the first act of a movie. The first act of the movie does first act of the movie things, but it all feels organic because of the plot, but also because of how those scenes are selected and presented to us that we can quickly kind of 
click into the movie's wavelength and just be prepared to not know what's going to happen next, essentially. Yeah. And, and something I hadn't thought about until you just said that was, um, you know, we talked about how if you're going to have that sort of exposition character who has things explained to them, you know, you can have have them inject conflict in the situation like Yorgos's other muse, Colin Farrell in Minority Report. Right. Like, no, you shouldn't do things this way. Yes, we should. Here's why. Um, but because this world is so crazy, it's really helpful to have someone come in who is part of this world and who looks up to Godwin mm -hmm. and is just sort of like, so it's sort of it, the movie is saying like, even this person over here doesn't think this is weird. They think it's fascinating. They think it's, they think it's really right. cool. So that, that also, as you're saying, helps teach you how to watch the movie. Right. Cause the idea of, you know, putting an infant's brain into a <laughs> adult body, like it helps that in this world, somebody, People think it's strange, but it's not impossible. It's not unheard of. It, it, it feels like it's within the realm of a thing that could happen in this universe. And, and it helps to have other characters let us know that. Because otherwise, it's like, how do I even begin to watch this movie if that's the premise? Yeah. And, you know, seeing all those animals with the different heads and bodies. Right. Like that's right. Impossible like, things. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and even Willem Dafoe's face. Right. Like, right. That's right. one of the first things that we see in this movie. And, um, you know, I made a dumb joke to my partner where I was like, oh, did they do something to his face? Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's essential. Right. That those images are essential because to us, it's like this is clearly amazing makeup that but it looks mask like. Right. It, it has this sort of monster movie like Frankenstein, which of course is what this story is. Yeah. Um, it's evoking that in our mind. So it's, it is tapping into our sort of like literary understanding of what facial disfigurement historically has meant in like literature from a say, symbolic standpoint. So it's signaling to us right away, hey, look, here's a person with a symbol for a face. Look at the symbolism of it. This is an allegory. And it's, it's on his face. We never forget about that. So every time we're watching it, we're being placed again into the world and again. And, you know, fairy tales come to mind. You know, this Absolutely. feels very much like a fairy tale and and everything throughout the movie, all the sets and the kind of backdrops feel like we're in a kind of a children's fairy tale land. Um, and I think that that also helps with the idea that this is an allegory because we all know fairy tales function as allegory and like lesson uh, kind of life lessons. And it's really smart to position the movie as essentially a very adult fairy tale. Yeah, I made a note that this yeah. was like if Terry Gilliam remade a Fritz Lang movie. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> Specifically Metropolis, you know, because sure. if you look at Metropolis is like the allegoriest of allegories, but it, but the entire set looks like it's a set that was made by people that's made to look like a set that none of this looks real. And then if you look at Brazil, it's like this looks like you you stumbled into another universe and it's like all looks real in its own surreal sort of way right and uh, and yeah both those movies are are also very allegorical in in what they're doing they're they're not trying to make you pretend make you think that this is all like gritty 1970s as we were talking about like we just put a camera on the wall and watch these actors act kind of filmmaking it's it's literally the complete opposite yeah there's something interesting also in in the way the plot unfolds. So, you know, the secret of what Bella is is kept and withheld for a bit 
but is mm -hmm. given to Max, right? Is his name? Mm -hmm. um, and us, I feel like kind of around the end of the first act. I can't remember if it's before she leaves or not, but it's it's weird. It is before she leaves. Okay. So we know, but she doesn't know. And so that's a, the sort of the one kind of dramatic irony situation of like, we know more about where she started than she does, or, you know, kind of the story of her birth, essentially. And I feel like that's, it adds sort of an interesting, like, framing device that I think ultimately is helpful to understand, like, oh, she's, this is, like, yeah, a child growing up and, bec like, becoming an adult in some ways. You're so, you're seeing that, you're, that helps frame, you know, she was an infant not that long ago. It's weird. Don't worry about it. She's <laughs> yeah. aging quickly. Um <laughs> But also creates a little bit of like dramatic tension of like at some point she's going to find out and what's what's that her reaction to that going to be because there's a period in the middle of the movie where there is wandering and we're going from this place to this place and Mark Ruffalo is just now she, he put her on a boat and you can't leave the boat and so there is a wandering but there is still that like we were checking back home with what's going on at home uh, to get that keep that subplot there and then there is this bigger question of like. Will she find out who she really is? What will be her reaction be to that? Which then it gets explored even more in, in the fourth act, which we'll talk about. The other story form this movie reminds me of is like, you know, the Odyssey, the the kind of hero's journey. There's there's that real, you know, venturing out into the world and getting lost and meeting strange characters, meeting people who influence you, give you new ideas, uh, make you reflect back on your life back home and what does it mean? Uh, and, that, and that's what, kept me engaged in the movie all the way through is you you always felt like Bella was moving into a new kind of chapter in this ongoing odyssey where there's gonna be a new maybe cast of characters around her to teach her kind of a new lesson introduce her to new ideas challenge her shock her whatever um and that's just it's just so much it was so gratifying to go on that journey um this may be converged to the other topic you want to bring up Michael partially because Emma Stone's performance somehow you movies are shot out of order somehow she tracked the progression mm -hmm. of this character so yeah. well. I kept like pinching myself, like how is she like on top of this every single scene? Like it's every layer of performance from physicality to like the words she is using, the, uh, the amount of like ability she has to like pronounce things correctly. Like every it's the, the progression is so smooth scene by scene by scene all the way up to the end of the movie. I, that alone blew my mind because how do you track that as an actor filming likely in a nonlinear fashion? I, I just don't understand. Yeah. 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 I mean, the fascinating <laughs> thing I'll, I'll talk about, I'm starting here in a second, but yeah. the fascinating thing about the story form is that um, I agree with you that it feels like an odyssey, right? Where you have essentially a character that is learning and growing with every sort of episodic like encounter that they have. Um, but it's also a fish out of water story. And that's really interesting because like a fish out of water story is technically is usually where there's the central character has a flat arc and they change everything about the world around them. Kind of, you know, mm. um, it's sometimes about how they adapt to the new environment, but, but more often it's kind of like being there or whatever, like Brian was saying, um, in our films of the seventies podcasts. And this somehow manages to be both of those things where, the dramatic question is like, yeah, what happened? Like, when is Bella going to find out what's it going to mean for her? 
Um, but also the dramatic question is like, what is gonna what is Bella gonna do in this scene that's going to explode something, right, about the world around her? Um, we mentioned on, I think it was the Breakfast Club, like the dramatic question in a lot of those dialogue scenes is just like, is Bender gonna mess with somebody? Or like, is is he gonna successfully get somebody like mad or rile somebody up? Um and that's kind of the dramatic question of most of these scenes also, too, is like, is Bella going to rattle somebody? And if so, how and what's it going to be like? Um, and that's an entertaining character to watch. Like, we do see her changing and learning and, and, and figuring out how to do new things. And Emma Stone's performance is riveting and we can keep talking about it. But like, also, the dramatic question of the scenes is often like, what is Bella going to do? And that in itself is hilarious. Like 90% of the time, Bella's going to do something wild and uh, somebody around her is going to lose their mind over it and it's going to be great. Yeah. The the other movies it was reminding me of, for better or worse, was Forrest Gump and Benjamin Button. Yep. Like those kinds of things. And I feel like, but but at the same time, very different. But I feel like especially you know, the Forrest Gump comparison is maybe an obvious obvious one, but it's that similar arc of like Forrest Gump and that movie has sort of a central like moral center of like, this is, but like, shouldn't things be this way? Like, why is the world so weird? And you send him out into this crazy world with Vietnam and the 60s and like all the stuff and that being the framework to, uh, for the audience to kind of look at our world in a different way. Like, I think that's one of the successes in that movie for me is, you know, knowing that sort of innocence and his morality lets us like look at us and and reflect on that. And I think that's something similar that's happening here. It's just that we're in a totally bizarre, not real version, but at every moment right. you can see through to our reality, like how right. each encounter she's having is reflective of something that, you know, an experience that exists in our reality. And so there's also just sort of the, I guess, thematic dramatic question of like, not only what's Bella gonna do, but like, what's Bella gonna think about this? Like, what's she gonna resolve, you know, the right way to navigate this or whatever? Like, I wanna know, because like, you're you're teaching me, Bella. Like, there's, right. there's something in going on this journey with her that I was like, this is so, educational and making me reflect on things and I feel like I'm growing with her mm. which is just so impressive it's one of my favorite types of characters which it, it, there's a catharsis in watching someone with no preconceptions question everything and just raise questions that nobody raises because it's like no that's just the way it is and that's she's doing that in almost every scene just like why wouldn't you keep furious jumping all the time you know like it should, <laughs> she'll always voice the yeah like why don't we just do this or this or this or why is it this way? Um, and I, it's just, it, I think as an audience member, there's, there's a delight. There's a delight in having somebody voice that on our behalf and, and force us to think, yeah, wait, why is it this way? This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And in this case, there's this, because of her like innocence at the beginning of the story, but also because of the framework of her being like essentially the daughter of a scientist, there's this purity to her curiosity that feels like it's not in any way self-interested. Bella does not care what happens to Bella, really. Mm -hmm. Like she, she's not going to tolerate any nonsense um, from people who are treating her badly, but also she'll just walk away. Right. Like, but also there's this, um, yeah, this detached, but eager, like this doesn't personally affect her, but she genuinely wants to know the answer because she's just so thirsty for knowledge and any form of knowledge, any type of experience is welcome to her because of this sort of like scientific study sort of framework for her journey. Um, you know, and like, I think in other ways, like if you just looked at a, a list of the things this character does in the movie, you wouldn't like her maybe, right? It seems like, oh, she's indulgent or she's spoiled or she's entitled or you could easily think see a character who's like she runs away from home with this rich guy and then she like has sex all the time and she cheats on him and like all this stuff if you put it in that framework it feels like well who would like this woman she's like an edith wharton protagonist but like in this case no no Stinland. Hey, yes um, or no okay fine we're dumb um i thought about fake laughing <laughs> you should all be embarrassed <laughs> anyway because of the spirit of Bella, we know under we understand on every level that this is just experience for its own sake, like wholehearted experience for its own sake. It's not about anything other than that for her, right? She's not trying to get ahead or play some kind of game. She's not bound by the social strictures or expectations of either her reality or ours. And that's so refreshing. That character is going to be likable every time, no matter what she does. And it's as she bumps up against, you know, it's funny, it's not our world, but morally speaking, or like people's sort of, right, they talk a lot about like polite society Mm -hmm. is this and it's that. Um, That's very much our world, or it's very much Victorian England and, uh, or, you know, the, the, 20s uh and by that i mean like the you know the year 21st century it's 19th century and it's 21st century at the same time all of that to say it feels familiar and so there needs to be this this genuine love coming from her or passion scientific passion coming from her to make that work yeah yeah and, and i think um so many things. One of which is, again, thinking about um, the comparison to Barbie is Barbie is very literally what if this character came into our world and what would that look mm, like, right? Mm-hmm. This is what if a character from who lives in a house in a, the crazy world goes out to the rest of the crazy world, right? But because it's operating this allegorical plane, then we never, we're never questioning what it means because, because whatever she is learning in that world is responding to our world, right? So when she's learning all these different philosophies or dealing with men in general or whatever, it's just like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. It's not like, 
hey, did you know that if you, you know, step on a pig the right way, this thing, it's like, that doesn't mean anything that doesn't translate at all. And everything in this movie is translating to our world. Um, And then with everything you were just talking about, about Bella, there was a funny, my partner and I were both kind of feeling this weird, uh, we were talking about it afterwards, feeling this weird moment, probably about 40% of the way in the movie of being like, oh, is she just still with Duncan? Like, is that just still what this, I kind of thought it was going to be like, Duncan takes her away and then she leaves him and then she goes and does this and goes and does this and goes and does this. And instead he's just sort of always there as this presence which is kind of cool because he's this sort of looming figure who who is always sort of trying to mold her and trying to keep her in place. But as you're just saying, she still does whatever the hell she wants, right? So we kind of get the best of both worlds where we get him kind of being this like this like threatening captor almost, but then we still get to see her go and explore this little part of of life and this thing over here. And then she eventually is like more free of him. And, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. Duncan is an interesting character and I didn't know, I didn't know I was going to want to spend the whole movie with him basically until I did. And then I was at Mark Ruffalo's performance is awesome, but just mm-hmm. as the, I didn't necessarily want her to be with that character for as much of the movie mm-hmm. until, until it happened. And I was, I was fine with it. I just got to shout out Mark Ruffalo for a minute. I loved him so much in this movie. And it made me sad that I haven't gotten to see him be more like this in more movies. Because he's just having the time of his life. And he's he's just eating it up. And it's just so... I'm just... I could just feel like this like childlike giddiness he must have had playing this role and how much fun he was having in every single scene. And I and that's part of why, yeah, Brian, I had the same feeling of, oh, wow, I'm surprised he's still in the story. But I don't mind because what a great character and what a great performance. And it, and Bella is allowed to keep changing even as he looms there. Exactly. Um, and he's a, just a interesting, fun presence to always have. Yeah, mm. I want to let's I want to. Let's make a note to come back to this in our conversation about acting, because I feel like mm. his performance feels like a different kind of performance than Emma Stone's to me. Mm-hmm. And so kinds of performances, I definitely want to make sure we talk about in that. Yeah, well, it's certainly something we'll talk about in that episode is that some actors are just really good at being themselves. And then that's why you cast them as themselves, basically. Um and I think Mark Ruffalo is one of those actors, even in like the MCU, he's still just sort of like being Mark Ruffalo-y. And that's kind of that's kind of interesting for that character. Right. So it's interesting to see him as we're talking about, give this theatrical larger than life over the top kind of performance, because we don't see that specifically from him, because that's not how he's that's not what he's used for in a lot of movies. Right. That, that's what I kind of meant when it's like, I'm sad we haven't seen more performances like this because it does feel like, yeah, he's cast to be Mark Ruffalo, kind of like the everyman. And this is just such a unique performance for him. Yeah. Casting like for and against type. Yeah, we can talk about all these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something I I also want to call out that I really like about Bella's arc is that there is this, she is this force of nature that's questioning everything. But there was a moment where I was a little worried that the, she wasn't going to evolve and that the, movie wasn't going to deal with any like deeper complexity but then it absolutely does and so it it successfully starts me off in that headspace that you were describing alex of wait yeah why don't we do this like why why are things the way they are but by the end i feel like her journey has demonstrated well sometimes there's reasons things are the way they are and we don't have like the power to control everything and so you know i feel like one of the pivotal 
moments is obviously when they stop on that island and the guy that she meets on the boat is like, that's where they're burying babies that didn't have enough money <laughs> or like... food. And it's, and it's, wow, okay. Uh, and, you know, you feel the frustration that she feels of like, but why? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And I feel like that was really powerful. And I liked that the movie didn't, like, she didn't find a way to help everything or make everyone better. Like, that's part of the getting older is understanding for better or worse. Some things are the way they are and you only have so much power over the rest of the world. And so I just thought that was a really interesting complexity that you could put into her without her becoming like cynical either. Like somehow it, it held both mm. this like, oh, I get it. Like things are complicated you know, furious jumping is used for a lot of things. Like, you know, she has that whole section where she's interacting with all these like prostitutes. And like, I feel like the movie deals with the complexity of all that without losing her soul, but without being like overly like saccharine with it also. And I uh, hard to navigate, I think. Yeah. I think it's really key that turn that you're identifying. Is it the midpoint? Probably. Um, that turn that you're identifying where the, you know, Bella has been insulated from the difficulties of life, not just by Willem Dafoe in the house that she grew up in and the various men that are, you know, intent on protecting her and or keeping her. Um, she has been insulated by money and status up until that point. Um, and then when she gives the money away and they get put off the ship, that film takes a turn where it's like, oh no, you're about to see what things actually can be like. Um, now to be clear, it doesn't get really bad for Bella the way that it does in real life, right? Or even in the world of the story where it gets really bad for people where they're bleeding or starving or genuinely being harmed, um, right? There's Bella is protected by the aura of the story mm. <laughs> and, and what it's trying to teach us. Um, but we see that she, you know, is in a difficult position and um, does things that she doesn't necessarily enjoy or like, yeah, is sort of forced into a realization of like, okay, not all people are good um, and not all experiences are pleasant. And here's, here's kind of the other flip side of the coin. And then she starts reading about like, starts reading philosophy, which she was doing on the boat. And then, but like continue, she's going to like meetings about socialism and, like she's she starts really sort of deepening and broadening her understanding of the world and the systems within it. Um, uh, snapping at um, what's his face, probably Mark Ruffalo's character, that they are their own means of production as they're on their way that to a meeting the is like my favorite thing. <laughs> that was the best. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's really crucial that the movie take that turn because otherwise it stays in this like sort of confection lightness place um and doesn't ever kind of feel like it's dimensional enough or like you know we wanted to talk about what kind of a best picture nominee this is and it would be easy for it to not be this kind of a best picture nominee like it it, it has surprising depth um, in the second half of the movie as it goes to those places and she starts becoming a sex worker and then like you know she goes back and learns a lot of things. And then we get to the fourth act, which I can't wait to talk about. Um, but yeah, that turns crucial. I think where the money is taken away. 
Yeah, well, just bring up the topic of sex. I mean, there's been articles written, maybe some Vox articles about just, hey, wait a minute, like, we haven't seen sex in movies lately. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and like, wow, Poor Things has a lot of actual sex in it. Um, and, and it's... It is refreshing and very European feeling. You know, Yorgos Lanthimos is European. Um, but just this this feeling of sex is a part of life. Sex is a part of growing up. Sex is a part of, like, if you think about all the different aspects of who we are that develop and change over time, sexuality is one of those things. And it is really refreshing and just cool to see a movie that is not afraid of sex at all. And in fact, kind of... Is mostly about it. Right, mostly about it. And because our lives are often, periods of our lives are kind of really about sex, you know? Like when we're young, we're going to college, like, you know, sex is a huge part of life for Our everybody. lives are a result of sex. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's just, it's it was nice to see um, a movie that is dealing with kind of development, coming of age, coming in, into one's own. And having like sex is like an integral part of that and and like different stages of how you relate to sex being a part of that development. And and it's, and it's really the allegory is so strong there where it's like there's the initial discovery of sexual pleasure, but then kind of the like discovery of like, oh, sex is a commodity and like men want sex with you for different reasons than the like obvious, you know, just everybody has a good time reason. And it just, I thought it was just so, yeah, it was just so nice to see an American you know, American made movie that that wasn't afraid of sex because we are yeah. weirdly afraid of sex and not afraid of incredible graphic violence in this country. Exactly. Um, but, you know, too much sex is very dangerous. <laughs> right. We, we have this sort of I think the, this sort of narrative or idea that we've gotten to a point where anything is anything goes now, you know, like it's not the 1950s where it was like, oh, you can't show that and you can't do this or you're going to get this kind of rating if you do that. Obviously, there's still ratings and stuff, but um, but it feels like everything is on the table now um, to the point where like the John Wick movies or whatever are just getting more and more like hyper violent. How much can we do? And yet, as you're just talking about sex is still sort of this thing that like it ebbs and flows. There are there are certainly decades and times where it feels like it's more it's more in our media and then there are times like now where it feels like it's it's surprising to see it actually be be there and not just in some and then the lights fade to black kind of way yeah also like fun sex like people having fun having sex i think there's like sex in oscar movies where it's like weird and gritty and cold you know (laughs) like 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 sex is portrayed as just like usually like a very deeply uncomfortable strange like like, ooh, look how artsy this is, that it's so edgy and weird. Um, and th- there's just like fun montages in this movie of Bella having sex because she's just like having the time of her life. And that's we don't see that very much from, you know, prestige sex scenes. <laughs> right. It's a very sex positive movie. Very sex positive. Oh, yeah. 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 I think there's been something interesting in the last kind of 10, 15 years where media has changed. Representation has changed. Culture has changed. We've had Me Too, we've had Black Lives Matter. Like there's been a lot of awareness made up to the people with the money that like, oh man, we got to like not be totally bad anymore. Uh, But not like there isn't, there hasn't been a lot of deftness in how that's been executed. And so I feel like the way that often manifests is just like, whatever that thing is, it's the third rail, put it over there. We can't touch it. And so I feel like, especially around like female representation, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was like, oh my God, there's a female as the lead in the movie. Like that's newsworthy. 
And I feel like we're getting to the point now where it, that doesn't seem as notable, uh, which is great. And I feel like part of that journey and the not, yeah, the inability to navigate it with deafness and also just like culture happens slowly. And so a movie released at the beginning of a change versus at the end of a cultural change is going to be received totally differently. And so mm. I think there are movies you can make today that you couldn't make 10, 15 years ago and vice versa. And so I think there's just been a like, well, let's just not worry about sex. Let's just keep it out. Let's like get it out of the four quadrant movies. We're not like, there's no romance. Like as long as we don't touch any of that, we can't do it wrong. So let's just not do it. And I feel like that's starting to change. And so that's, again, why this movie is so impressive is that it is totally, as we're saying, sex po positive dives into it, but also feels like it's extremely, like it, it's holding all the things really, really well and smart and doesn't feel like it's sacrificing anything or like a regression in any way. It feels like a step forward and bringing back some topics to the table all at once. Yes. Exactly. That's what I was going to say about why there's not sex in movies anymore. Um, and I, I think also the allegorical nature enables, right, enables all of this like sex to be in the movie, um, to be the text of the movie, right? Like Bella is this rare kind of character where she is so childlike and innocent, but so enthusiastic about everything, as I was mentioning, that like she has no baggage in terms of either her own sex and sexuality or like society's, you know, hangups about sex and sexuality. She comes in as an absolute blank slate. And so like what she enjoys, she enjoys what she doesn't, she doesn't. And like, it, that's the remarkable thing about Emma, Emma Stone's performances in the sex scenes, but also at all times, right? Is this like the sort of nakedness of the emotion um, that is being portrayed. Uh, and, and that's beautiful to see, but of course that's not a possible thing in real life. There's no person who comes in with no sexual hangups or like baggage or damage or whatever it is that doesn't exist. There's no such adult in our world, but if there could be right, there's mm -hmm. this, I think it's this thing that enables us to, again, go back and ask these fundamental questions about sex and sexuality along with everything else. The other thing is that overall, the story becomes larger than being about sex, right? It becomes a story about empowerment and, and um, liberation for Bella in a very Victorian way. Um, but like it becomes about uh, Bella having complete control over her own self and her own destiny, her own identity. And women's liberation, if I can use that word from the 70s, um, is, is and has always been about sexual freedom. But the problem is women cannot have true sexual freedom until they are actually free from violence, patriarchy, all of these other things that have been used to imprison them um, historically. And so that's a really interesting aspect of this, where it is not until the fourth act that Bella really encounters toxic patriarchy that is going to harm her in a very serious way, even while acting like a sex worker. And, you know, I thought it was interesting. I thought we were going to get to it earlier um, when the madam at her establishment is like, you know, some men like it when you don't like it. 
that's what they're into. And I was like, oh, so we're going to get into this now. Okay. And Bella's going to really find out. But she actually doesn't find out until much later after, like, she decides to go with What's-His-Face. And so I really think that that aspect ends up being critical to the story, but I'm not sure it needed to go into the fourth act. But I do think it is important that Bella encounter that sexually violent form of patriarchy uh, because that is the reality that most of us live in and have lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and then I think to zoom out from that and talk about sort of these this best picture kind of idea, right, is I'm just thinking think about what Michael was saying about sort of like when does a movie fall in a in a kind of cultural era, um, and and I think that there are yeah there are the people who are sort of everything is safe so then they're just making these really safe movies over here and they're not pushing any envelopes and then there's the people like maybe like a Tarantino who are just like I don't really care what's going on in the world I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do and then sometimes you're like okay that's kind of I can respect some of it and then some of it feels really tone deaf or really offensive or really whatever right Um, and then there are the people who are sort of like you know, like I'm going to keep going back to Barbie, but like, like Greta Gerwig, who are just saying like, I'm going to take what's there and then take what kind of where filmmaking is and what hasn't been done and whatever. And then kind of remix that and put something out into the world that feels of the time, but speaking to the future, speaking to the next step and not being like, this was really interesting five years ago. You know, it's when like racist learns a lesson movies get best picture, you know, you're just like, (laughs) okay, like (laughs) is that, is that really like, and if you're like, Oh, I know which one. No, there's several. Um, but, uh, uh, but it's like when something feels like it's too late or whatever. Right. And, and I think that, um, I have a problem with the word best and we can talk about this when we talk about acting in the best picture and stuff, because usually that's not, that's partially what it is. Is, but it's more like most important or most notable, noteworthy. That's also really good because it because it has to you know it has to do that as well. Um, but yeah, I think this is a great example of a movie that that as we're talking about is is not being is being its own crazy thing and being whatever it wants to be while also n- in no way being tone deaf and, and and trying to actually like speak to to where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah, and to cap that off, I think a meta thing that is actually super critical is that Emma Stone is also a producer on this movie. Right. And so there is a sense that, like, the actor had power and control over this. Like, the the female that is the subject of all of this also was had authorship, which, again, is maybe something that would not have happened 10, 15 years ago and would have potentially colored the same kind of movie in a different way. Also mm-hmm. true of Barbie. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, times, they're changing. Uh, so we keep talking about this fourth act. So let's let's talk about the fourth act. Right when we would probably go to lessons, we're going to <laughs> right, impose right. the fourth this act. Is the fourth yeah. act. Yeah. This is the fourth act of this episode. Uh, you thought we were done, but there's one more thing. So my thinking around this kind of actually ties to, well, yeah, ties entirely to, to character arc. And so one of the things I think is interesting about this movie is that all of our side characters have arcs also, right? Like all the men that are the supporting cast go on their own journeys of, you know, Mark Ruffalo, obviously his uh, fancy demeanor is brought all the way down and we see the the screaming child, him outside, you know, he has that. Um, 
Willem Dafoe, I, his character is interesting and and sort of wrestling with, did I do the right thing? Is she a daughter? Is she a science experiment? There's like sort of that kind of stuff happening in the background. And then Max, I think, is also an interesting character where he starts off, you know, on the surface, it seems like he's wants the best for her and is like loves her in a in an emotional way. But I feel like by the end, after they've gone through this journey of where they they create a mark a Margaret Qualley also uh, <laughs> yeah. other daughter, which is like when she showed up, I was like, of course, of course it's of you course. playing this like, yeah. perfect. Um uh, but I feel like kind of by the end, he's sort of, you know, realizes that like maybe he didn't like really see her or he wasn't like quite mature enough to actually, yeah, enter into a relationship like this with his eyes wide open and, you know, was probably just kind of romanticizing her in a similar way that like Mark Ruffalo's character was and just from a different angle. So, but with Bella... What's interesting is that you get to the third act and she's back and she's learned things and Willem Dafoe's dying and it's like, I'm going to marry you and the end. But what's interesting is that she had already promised to marry him at the beginning. That was kind of her plan the whole time. It was like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to learn things and be crazy and come back and marry you uh, once I've you know figured out all this stuff. And so the act of getting married doesn't actually represent like change for her. Like it doesn't, she, she has gone on this arc, but there isn't an action left for her to take that would signify that change in a deep way. Like I think about Meg Lafave, one of the writers on inside out who I love, who talks about the third act is where your character has to go and prove that they've learned the lesson. So sadness, like joy needs to go like, risk everything for sadness. And so I feel like that's kind of what this fourth act does is it gives Bella one more big test and kind of shows her, presents her with the biggest antagonist yet. And it's, yeah, once I kind of clicked into that, that this is like, oh, this is the final test where you're really going to have to like come into your own fully. I appreciated what the fourth act was it was just interesting pacing wise that it kind of interrupted that flow so that's that's what i made of it yeah it, it's interesting because it feels like there's such a resolution not because they're getting married i thought the resolution came in actually the kind of walk with her and max yeah. where they negotiated yeah. Yeah. the terms that's of their true. marriage essentially and it just felt like all right she she has landed in this complete adult you know, she owns herself and she's not going to let any other person own her or control her. She's found somebody who respects her autonomy and is willing to let her live the life she wants to live. And so, yeah, it's an interesting thing where she has landed in this kind of complete finish line. Um, but then there's this final test. And yeah, I'm curious, Trisha, what do you what do you make of the fourth act? And is was that test necessary? Is, is the test a crucial part of her journey and and the ending, of course, is a great punchline ending. You know, how where does that leave us with her at the end of the movie compared to if it had ended with that scene walking with Max and kind of negotiating their future and her landing in that kind of happy place? Yeah. So I need to watch it again. 
because that's the part that's been kind of like sticking with me. Um, to your point, Michael, my thought was that on that walk, they were going to decide not to get married, but to like be together. Right. So like, she's like, I'm not wife material. I don't want to be a wife. Like, but I do want to be a doctor. Will you be my colleague? Like, I want to share life with you kind of a thing um, where the decision was actually a different one, but with like a similar tone in terms of resolution. Um, and I thought that would have been lovely as it was. I agree, Alex, the, the, um, nature of that conversation still felt like a complete arc to me, uh, for Bella's character. So I was really not expecting this like last big bad guy to show up. Um, and I don't know if I would say necessary. I do want to watch it again. To me, it adds like almost an explicitly political or like, um, yeah, an explicit like sort of modern framework onto the story, as I mentioned, because it frames Bella as coming up against like the most, I'm not going to say the most common, um, but the, the most um, undisguised version of like patriarchy yet, right? Where like the other men that she encounters in her life are more benign. They are definitely still like upholding this system that tries to control own, you know, uh, yeah, dictate to her what she can and can't do. But at the same time, they're not violent. Um, and then coming up against this, it feels like, oh, hey, and by the way, among the other many, many, many ways that men have historically controlled women, there's also violence, that old tune, um, where he physically imprisons her in the house and is, you know, obviously trying to uh, disfigure her. It's awful. Um, anyway, so I thought that that felt like almost, um, I don't know, like, not like it didn't belong in the world, but it kind of changed the meaning for me or like drew, drew more lines specifically to like, and look at this thing that's real and look at this thing that's also hard to look at. Um, this aspect of this theme and this story. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't dislike it. I see what it's doing. Um, but I also, I'm not all the way sure that like, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that the movie's two hours and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's a two hour movie and then 20 right. extra minutes, right. mm -hmm. um, which is fine, right? That's totally fine. Um, and I appreciate that aspect of like, uh, of um, like, yeah, trying to make sure that that part of the theme is also in the text. And, but I think you maybe could have found a way to work it in earlier, right? Like she could have had a really, um, mean client or like a really violent client right uh when she was a sex worker which maybe could have also served that purpose um but i i see you know i think the other part of that character um her ex-husband is that he's really wealthy right and he's also military so he's like he's two key representations of, again, how these systems are created and upheld, right? It's wealth and military might. Um, and I get it. Like, I get it. I get everything that it's doing on this metaphorical level. Um, but yeah, I'm just, it's like, it, it lacks a neatness, mm -hmm. I think, that, mm -hmm. that I don't, uh, you know, 
I want to watch it again. Yeah, it's so self-contained in its like yeah, chapter. It, it, it stands out in that way. Yeah, yeah, I definitely definitely want to watch the movie again um, and and think more about this. And and you all say word better me than. But uh, the the other the only like notes that I have just from a sort of storytelling standpoint um, and not so much a deeper thematic metaphorical thing is one. It was set up earlier, right? We know she had this past life, right? right? So it feels like, oh, okay, this is like the final answer to that like loose thread that's still hanging open. So I think that helps me go, that helps me lean in when that happens and not be like, what is this random new thing? It's like, oh, okay, this is the one little piece that we haven't kind of had answered yet. Two, I think it's quickly paced. Um, so I think that helps it. I think it's sort of like we're going to get in and tell this like little mini story and then get out. And then three, I think as we've kind of talked about, it does give it a kind of fun final confrontation, final battle kind of climactic sense to the movie rather than just she comes home and has a nice conversation and then she looks, she's grown up. Right. Um, so I think for all those reasons, it worked for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I do remember having that little feeling of like, Oh, we're, we're doing a new thing. Um, but then I, I don't remember feeling that for very long because of all the reasons I said I was kind of, I was into it and then the movie was over and I was like, cool. I'm, I'm more than happy to have that little, that little run around the bases there at the end. I also really like Christopher Abbott as an actor. Yeah. I think he's yeah. always really interesting and anything he's in. Uh, yeah. He's always, he chooses interesting roles. And so it was fun when he showed up in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that it, it does wrap up kind of Bella's, mom's story i'm gonna use that phrase um, (laughs) and kind of like gives closure to that which i think is interesting part of i think why it feels like that tacked on thing is also almost like the framing of the wedding like she literally like the movie stops and she's like hang on i gotta go do a thing and almost like walks out of the movie and walks into the fourth act and then comes back but i also wonder and this is maybe projecting um but like you know, I think the there's a version of this movie where she becomes a sex worker. We're in that period. We get that warning from the madam. And then one day, like one of the patrons is this guy and he comes right. and it is that like, oh, this is the worst case scenario thing. And I feel like that maybe is even the more conventional way you like should do it on paper. But I feel like it would disrupt some of like the sex positiveness of this movie. Right. right. And I feel like that's kind of one of the things that I, I feel like modern movies are are struggling with. I feel this this kind of about Barbie too is like there's a there is a conventional way to do this beat, but it it's going to undercut the bigger thing if we do it a certain way. It's gonna give whoever the naysayer to be like, no, I'm going to point at this thing and see like, you know, if it was in this case, he came while she was a sex worker to like torment her. It's like, yeah, see, you shouldn't have had fun having sex. See what happens. Like, I think there are just these weird traps you can fall into when trying to follow conventional structure while trying to do something different that can undercut it. And that was something that I was feeling again in Barbie and in this and why I think it's such a triumph that it, the the biggest bump is that like it was a little weird for 60 seconds before then the movie kept going and I was like on on the bucking bronco again yeah and I do think it's interesting and crucial that Bella goes with him as a, her choice 
Yes. Right. Like he doesn't come in there and grab her and kidnap her and drag her away or something like that. You know, he's basically like, will you come with me? And she's like, yes, I will. Um, and it kind of rounds out that like, you know, you can make a choice that will take you somewhere you didn't want to go. Right. Like that spirit of curiosity and experimentation it, it does have its limits um, because there are some really dark corners of experiences that you don't want to be in. So I felt like it was doing that thing also by making it, again, a choice for her. Again, I get everything that it's doing. Um, it Yeah, it is. I think the carefulness of its execution is critical to the allegory. Um, and so for that reason, I feel like you just definitely want to. I just definitely want to study it. Yeah. Yeah. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Well, speaking of studying, what lessons are we going to take away from poor things? Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. I'm going to talk about Barbie again. Um, th these are currently like tied for my favorite movie of the year right now, so I'm thinking about them a lot. Um, but something we talked about on the Shining and Apocalypse Now episodes, I think, was if you have if your plot is simple, you can get. Sorry, I'm just loving that like Barbie is transitioning to like those movies. Yeah. Like that's the world yeah. we live in today, and I love yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Yeah, uh, um, Shining Apocalypse Now, it's like if you're, we talked about if your plot is simple, you can get kind of complex or weird with what you're doing with that plot, right? Um, and like thematically complex too. Um, and I wouldn't say the plot of Barbie or Poor Things is super simple. They're like, there's moving parts, there's kind of surprises in them and stuff. It's not just go up a river to kill a guy or, you know, struggling writer decides to kill everyone instead of finish his novel. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I do feel like the reason I keep combining or connecting Barbie and Poor Things is they're the same plot archetype, if we could use that. Like, like the sort of the fish out of water, Alice in Wonderland, kind of hero's journey, like you mentioned, Alex, kind of thing. And sometimes the first act of those movies can feel a little too familiar where you're just kind of like, oh, okay, they're going to, here's the thing and they're going to go and they're going to see the world and they're going to do whatever. But then I think that just settles us in so nicely for the twists and turns and complexity that come along the way. You know, we've talked about this a lot already that this movie, this movie feels like it's constantly resettling you in to then go do the next crazy thing. Um, so it's like, yeah, during this movie, I feel like I had a pretty good sense of overall where the story was going, which kept me feeling grounded and, and not feeling like, oh, this is too nuts. I don't know what's going on. You know, yeah, I get it. Bo's afraid. Um, but then I 
I usually had no idea, as you were saying earlier, Alex, I usually had no idea what was going to happen next and what was going to happen in this scene and what was going to happen after this scene. So it was sort of this really nice blend of this kind of plot archetype that felt simple enough that I, that I knew where we were. And then this just insane world and insane story and kind of insane cast of characters that just were so bouncing all over the place. And then that fourth act kind of was a nice little extra twist from under the rug. It's like I was settled and I was settled and then, ooh, now I'm unsettled, but ooh, now I'm resettled. And I think that sort of that constant push pull, I think just really worked for me. So yeah, take a plot archetype, use it to keep your audience oriented and then do whatever the hell you want with it to make it be your version of the story that you want to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. That summary of like, I, you were tethered to the bigger thing, but at any given moment, you didn't know what was going to happen next. Like that's, yeah. that's great. Like that's what you want. And what's, I feel like is so rare in movies for me these days. And again, Barbie also, like I'm talking yeah. about both those movies with basically everything I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Alex, what's your lesson? Uh, interesting you mentioned Barbie because I think Barbie also has this moment, maybe at a similar point in the movie, but there's the moment where Bella uh, kind of leaves Duncan behind in the hotel room and just explores the city on her own, like Lisbon, I guess, um, and has that moment of awe at kind of the beauty of life uh, when there's she sees the woman playing the guitar or instrument up on the on the balcony, and it's just like. The execution of that moment in this movie was so great. The sound design was so crisp and clear and you could feel the fullness of that moment. Uh, and I just I thought it was such a beautifully done version of that type of scene, which is where a character sinks into the present and experiences something so deeply it moves them to tears. Um, Barbie kind of has that sitting on the bus stop um, and kind of noticing just the different facets of life um, happening around her. Uh, and I think yeah, for both movies, it's a crucial moment. It's kind of a crucial moment of just taking in this world as really beautiful, kind of outside of yourself, like you know, no longer self-focused, but just taking in life. Uh, and, and I think that's just always a crucial step in this kind of coming of age story. You, you get outside of your like immediate needs and desires and like urges and just, just stop thinking about oneself at all and realize life is amazing. Um, and this movie just had a, one of the best versions of that with that woman on the, on the balcony. So kudos your ghost. He's, he's good. He's good at these things, man. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it kind of late in its run. I only saw it like a week and a half or two weeks ago. But the theater was pretty full and the audience was really into it. And like you could tell at first it was like an audience that maybe is like, wait, what movie did we come see? But then it was just like right. laughter the whole time. Or in that moment, you could feel everyone like just one of those experiences where you're that energy is shared and you can only get it in a theater. And it was, it was really nice. Trisha, what's your lesson? My lesson is dialogue. Um, the dialogue in this movie is such a joy. Yeah. It's really funny and like complex, but hilarious. And I love that, you know, the story is such that we need to be reminded at every moment about Bella's like rawness and the newness of her experience of everything. And like her language acquisition and development throughout the story is an amazing way to track that. And it's done so 
brilliantly because there are these hilarious phrases, right? Like fear is jumping that, um, you know, Bella thinks to put together that you wouldn't think to put together um, as a mature reasoned adult who speaks whatever version of English that you speak um, fluently. So it's like, it, it has this playful way of approaching language and dialogue, especially Bella's, um, that is so memorable and like I can tell is already going to become so, so quotable and iconic um, because it's just so odd and quirky, but makes total sense and like fits so well with her character and again evolves throughout the entire film. It's Incredible dialogue writing. Um, it's amazing dialogue writing. And it's amazingly delivered by Emma Stone. Of course it is. Um, I just I just want to listen to it all again. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to listen to her say it all again. Um, it's just so great. Also, it, when she's very early on acquiring language, it's like someone clearly, and, and that whole sequence is like someone clearly who has a toddler um, who is acquiring <laughs> language has really done their work on studying this because as someone in that situation, the things that people who, you know, young, young toddlers um, say are astounding, right? Like they can't say a really basic thing, but then they'll like come out with this really complex, interesting, weird phrase that makes more sense than anything you've ever said in your life. <laughs> um, it's like, it's amazing. And it's just really well observed, but also, yeah, just delightful uh, in its syntax and, and vocabulary. And it, I, I just adore it. Yeah. 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 So good. Um, yeah. I, so I've been thinking a lot the past several months about like, how do you create meaning in a story? Because ultimately that's what you want is you want a story to have meaning for it to be a meaningful experience. <laughs> that's what some people want. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other people don't care about that. <laughs> well, yes, I care. And I feel like being able to create meaning is like the goal. And I feel like this movie was such a great reminder of like, as we were talking about at the very beginning, metaphor, representation, reality doesn't equate to truth. Like there are lots of different ways to express truth. And maybe reality is the worst way to like get to truth and explore truth because of you know, defense mechanisms and all the things that we've talked about. And so, yeah, I, that's just this hit me over the head of like, oh, yeah, like there's a reason why stories like this are are impactful and, you know, especially, you know, Alex and I work in the video game industry. There's a lot of push toward like realism, make it real. Everything has to be as real as possible, but reality sucks. That's why I watch movies and like being able to create something that is metaphorical and full of meaning and representative and entertaining is the whole point. And I think we can lose sight of the things that actually do that. And this movie is just full of all those things. So I want to watch it a million times and absorb all of that. Yes. <sighs> Poor things. Good work. What a delight. All right. yeah. Yes. Yes. Good times. Um, okay. Well, so uh, really quick before we get into what else we've been watching. Reminder that next week we'll be back with Anatomy of a Fall. And we're talking about True Detective Night Country week by week over on the Beyond Screen Play Patreon. And as we have alluded to several times, we have an upcoming patron-exclusive conversation about acting uh, that will be coming up in, I think, two weeks. I'll check the schedule later. Uh, in the meantime... <laughs> 
what else have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I watched the limited series uh, Fellow Travelers on Showtime via Paramount Plus, however you get your Showtime nowadays. <laughs> That's how I got it. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a really lovely uh, series about a group of gay men uh, through like from the 50s through the 80s uh, or early 90s even. Um, uh, starting Matt Bomer. Uh, and it's just like it's, it's just a lovely, you know, like very also sex positive, also very real, very honest uh look at just like gay life through these eras starting with kind of this moment of like the lavender scare which is it's kind of along with the red scare the mccarthy era there was this you know basically communists and homosexuals are gonna infiltrate our government and ruin our country and so it's you know these men are working for the government and trying to hide their identities while you know coming under question about their personal lives and so a very interesting look at gay history through this like incredibly tumultuous time um, and just, yeah, just, just a very touching story overall. So, uh, that is fellow travelers on Showtime slash Paramount plus, however you get it. <laughs> nice. nice. What time does it air? <laughs> <laughs> Explain that joke to your kids later. <laughs> exactly. uh, Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Yes. If you like, uh, Poor things. And Barbie, uh, I have another great movie for you that I watched recently called The Crime is Mine from 2023. It is a French film uh, directed by Francois Osson, and it is set in the 1920s. It's kind of like a French, but like a madcap French Chicago, sort of, um, where it's about this young actress and she gets accused of murder. And uh, she and her roommate, who is also a young woman, they're totally broke and um, her her roommate's a lawyer and her her roommate is like, what if you did do it? Probably you would be exonerated and then you might be famous. Um, and so they kind of pretend that she did do it. It's kind of like this whole, it's very farcical and whimsical and really funny. And uh, yeah, I, it was a, uh, Isabelle Huppert comes in sort of later into the movie um, in a really, in a really uh, Isabelle Huppert role. It's very big <laughs> <laughs> and outrageous and there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, but yeah, sort of this uh, lovely feminist romp about uh, women murderers in the 20s and um, <laughs> in French. It's a delight. I just, it was great. So yeah, nice. I really, really liked it. The crime is mine. Nice. Cool. Or in French, mon crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My crime. Nice. Uh, Brian, what have you been watching? Um, yeah, you know, I started the episode talking about the this kind of art house renaissance that we're in. Um, so it seems like a good time to mention Dream Scenario. Uh -huh. uh, the the mm -hmm. A24 movie produced by Ari Aster, so check, check. Um, and <laughs> if you haven't seen the trailers, it's Nicolas Cage playing this sort of boring biology professor who suddenly starts showing up in everyone's dreams. Um, and then that makes him a celebrity. But then what does that mean? Especially when dream Nicolas Cage starts not being so nice. And then everyone thinks that real Nicolas Cage is this, this image that they have seen. All right. Allegory. Um, yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed it. It's funny and weird and sometimes really touching. Um, the only thing I'll say, and I only say this to kind of give people expectations, is 
it just kind of is the movie that it says it's going to be in the trailer and then that's it. And I think my partner on the drive home were just sort of like, yeah, that was, that was what that movie was. <laughs> you know, it's like, we were like, instead of like picking it apart and being like this meant that it's like a little bit of that, but not much. And I, I still think it's totally worth watching. And I think, I think you can get a lot out of it, enjoy it, but it's almost like it maybe is better to have the expectations of it's, it's just gonna, that's what the movie is. It's just that. And then, but how it's done is, is uh delightful most of the time. Let's good to know. Cause yeah, the trailer was interesting where I had that feeling of, Oh, is the movie just, is this, is this all it is? Okay. Right. I guess you can make a whole movie of that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got some, it's got some fun twists and turns along the way. Nice. Very cool. Michael. Um, yes. Yeah, so I have been reading a book that Ooh. I want to mention because it's one of my favorite books that I've ever read. I'm not quite finished with it, but I'm almost done. Uh, so it's called Determined. Uh, a science of life without free will. So oh boy. it's a <laughs> his favorite book he's ever read. Um, Jeez. On brand. Here Michael. we go. Uh, so it's by a guy named Robert Sapolsky. He's a professor of biology, neurology, neuro neurological sciences, and neurosurgery at Stanford. He's super smart. He has a really fun, accessible, silly uh, like writing style, um, which I really, really like. But so, yeah, the, the, the framework of the book is, is there such thing as free will? No, here's why. Uh, but in the examination of it, he's, again, very playful about like, no one wants to hear that there's no such thing as free will. So let's just look at how our brains actually work and look at some examples and learn about all this crazy stuff that happens in our brain and our world. And so it's, it starts with that question, but it goes to a lot of different places. I know a lot more about the behavior of bees and how bees find the optimal source of honey using emergent behavior. Like if you're a nerd like me, it's super, super fun. Uh, but it also talks about sort of the, like the most applicable realm of this question, which is, I think something we've been talking about, which is, uh, you know, and poor things, we're using this other framework to look at our world and maybe see it a little bit more clearly because we're stepping out of our familiar frameworks. Questioning the idea that everyone has total agency all the time and the free will, and it just it raises questions about like morality and social justice. And so this like book gets all into that and you know things like schizophrenia. For a long time, we thought schizophrenia was because mothers were bad at mothering. And so mothers are bad and we got to blame them because we're humans and we like blaming and we like punishing people. Now we know it's just biology, like screwed up. It's your brain. There's an explanation. There's no morality attached to it. So we remove responsibility from it. Same thing with epilepsy, which hunts goes into all these things and kind of raises this question that I think is unsettling, but important, which is like, why do we like to assign morality to everybody's actions and why do we enjoy punishing why do we like feeling like we've we deserve this or that person deserves that our brains are just brains and neurons and doing things and so anyway i think it it goes to lots of places it's probably very uncomfortable for a lot of people but that's why i like it and it's just really i don't know it's really really fun i think it's an important book so i'm i'm talking about it so determined by robert sapolsky I'm listening to the audiobook version of it now at Michael's recommendation, and it is dense. It is, I mean, it is a science book. He is a playful, like, accessible scientist, but it's dense. 
I'll, I'll wait for the movie. <laughs> I feel like there's also like really interesting implications with free will and like writing because like in theory, like characters are choices, right? Like what is a character going to choose or reveals character, but also the whole thing with like a story is that at the end, looking back, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course that's what happened. So right. was there any other choice they could have made? Is there even a choice being made at that point? We should abolish the word choice. The end. Are you the Merovingian? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I would be. If the chocolate cake causes a cascade of neurons and yeah, it's man. all over. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, Excellent. All right. Well, this has been our conversation about poor things. Like I said, next week we'll be back with Anatomy of a Fall. If you want to head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon, we're talking about True Detective Night Country, and we have an episode of Tr on Chinatown that released not too long ago. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, and Jose Gomez. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayoros. Send us a tweet, say hi, let us know what you thought of Poor Things, and we will see you next week for our episode on Anatomy of a Fall. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.